grab your Bibles while you are standing. Grab your Bibles and turn to the New Testament book of 1 Peter, chapter number 2. 1 Peter, chapter number 2. We are having bridge kids this morning. That's a yes? Okay. Bridge kids, you are dismissed. That's elementary age kids, grades K through 5. Your teachers are waiting and ready for you at the back for a Sunday school lesson appropriate for your age. First Peter chapter number Two, we'll begin with verse number 11. First Peter chapter number 2, beginning with verse number 11. It is a refreshing sound to hear the pages of actual Bibles being turned. First Peter chapter number 2, beginning with verse number 11. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Verse number 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sufferings while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree, that we might die to sins 
and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have your seats. We, by nature, are rebellious people. We are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, they rebelled against their great God by breaking his law and eating of the forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that rebellious nature has been passed down to all the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Not only is it in us spiritually, but it's in us nationally as well. You don't believe me? Go and ask the British. Oftentimes we forget that at the heart and the foundation of our national heritage is rebellious civil disobedience. As Americans, we have this spirit of rebellion in us. As individuals, many of us have rebellious spirits as evidenced by the fact that we don't want nobody <laughs> telling us what to do, how to do it, when to do it, where to do it, or why to do it. We love our autonomy. But is this the nature of the born-again believer? Peter wants to help us deal with this, of how believers are to behave in an unbelieving world. Two weeks ago, we dealt with verse, chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. In that passage, we learned how believers are to relate to their God. And here's the answer, be holy. In verses, chapter 1, verse number 22, going into chapter 2, verse number 10, we then learn how we should relate to one another. Here it is, love one another. Peter now teaches us as Christians how we then are to relate to an unbelieving world. How are we to live in the midst of an unbelieving world? Peter opens this section in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, with this word, beloved. Because he's going to tell y'all some hard stuff. 
So beloved, I have some truth for you this morning. The first thing Peter teaches us about a believer's behavior in an unbelieving world is this. We should live honorably among an unbelieving world. We should live honorably among an unbelieving world. Look with me at verses 11 through 12. Peter begins this section with a negative exhortation that is then followed by a positive exhortation. In verse 11, he gives them the negative exhortation, which is this, abstain from the passions of flesh which wage war against the soul. Peter in this verse teaches us that holiness is war. Peter teaches us that our sanctification is a daily battle. The desires of the flesh are hostile to the desires of the redeemed soul. And friends, if we are to win this war against the flesh, we have to abstain from giving in to the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are to be conquered. One way we conquer the flesh is by remembering who we are. One way we conquer the flesh is by remembering who we are. I'm in this text. Look with me at verse number 11. He begins with this. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That's who we are. Sojourners. People traveling through Exiles, foreigners to this world. We are foreigners on this earth because of our allegiance to Christ. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And as sojourners and exiles, we are to remember that we are to be in the world but not of the world. Sojourners and exiles take their Standards of behavior, not from the culture, but from the culture of heaven. That's the negative exhortation, abstain. Here's the positive exhortation in verse number 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That word honorable means a high level of moral quality. It can be translated noble, virtuous, good or praiseworthy. Our behavior then before an unbelieving world is to be of the best quality. Why? It's in the text. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are to keep our our conduct uh, 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 noble because when unbelievers make accusations against us, and they will, they should see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's notice a couple of things here in this verse. First, our good deeds are being observed. Thank you. Rewind. Press play. Our good deeds are being observed. 
You are under the microscope of this world. Beloved, we live before a watching world. And they are waiting for us to stumble. They can't wait to point out our hypocrisy. The world is watching. And rather than give the world reasons to continue to disbelieve, we are to perform good deeds. Notice here that being sojourners and exiles doesn't mean we withdraw from the world. Okay, okay, let me say it again then. Notice, he tells us we ought to keep our conduct honorable among the Gentiles, and we ought to perform good deeds. We don't withdraw from the world. No, 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 no. We take on the heart and the attitude of Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. Here's what it says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's his word. Build houses and live in them. In Babylon, <laughs> plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your, your welfare. Friends, as believers, we don't withdraw from the world. We actually engage the world. We engage the world by seeking the welfare of the city. This is where God has sent us. Instead of withdrawing, we ought to set up our tents as missionaries. Notice I said we set up tents like they did in Exodus because they were a moving people. Our problem is we want our mansions down here when our reward is great in heaven. We pray to the Lord on behalf of the city. So going back to first, Peter, we engage the world when we perform good deeds. And as a result, unbelievers will have to give glory to God on the day of visitation. Question, what is this day of visitation? I'm glad you asked. There are two interpretations about what the meaning of this day of visitation means. Some say that the, that the day of visitation is the day that God visits the person bringing them the grace of salvation. It is the day that God regenerates their soul or causes them to be born again. Those who lean toward this interpretation look at verses from both the Old and New Testament when God would visit someone and they would be redeemed or saved or, or, or delivered. That's one view. The other view says that the day of visitation refers to the end-time judgment. Here's the reason. The, you're going to already tell what view I like. The first reason, 
that they believe that the day of visitation refers to the end time judgment is context. Because you do know that whenever you take the con out of context, all you left with, or whenever you, ah, when you take the text out of context, all you left with is a, oh, thank you. They say the, the context, when you look at the context of this unit, Peter relies heavily on the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 23 and Isaiah chapter number 26, when God visits a nation, it is always for the purpose of judgment and not salvation. Also, when you look at outside of the immediate context and look at the whole book context of 1 Peter, Peter's primary focus is on the end times, the day of the revelation of Jesus Christ. The day when Christ will return with the believer's inheritance. So when you look at the context, the immediate context and the whole book context, the day of visitation must mean that it's going to be the day when God judges both the righteous and the unrighteous. When they stand before the judgment seat of Christ, they will remember our good deeds because they have seen our good deeds. And at that judgment seat, they will still have to give glory on their way to hell. Y'all don't like my interpretation. That's all right. You can be wrong. So we keep our conduct honorable. So ultimately, God will be glorified. Verses 11 and 12 are really actually transitional verses in the book. They're like hinges to this book. Now he's going to get into the heart of how we really ought to believe or behave in an unbelieving world. I've got two points. I really should have three, but, but chapter three, verses one through seven takes, needs its own sermon because it's about wives submitting to their husbands. Ha. Be mad at Peter, not Brandon. So then, how are we to live honorably among an unbelieving world Verses 13 through 7, Peter says we are to submit to governing authorities. Submit to governing authorities. Friends, I wish I had a shouting text for you today, but this is just real hard truth we're getting today. Since we, here's what Peter is doing. He's hearing the argument because some who read his letter or hear his letter read, would say, since we are sojourners and aliens and citizens of the kingdom of heaven, how are we to live in relation to our earthly government? Is it okay to ignore the laws of the land? Is it okay to rebel against governing authorities since we serve King Jesus? And Peter says, absolutely not. One way we keep our conduct honorable among unbelievers is to be subject to governing authorities. But why? Look at verse 13. He says, we do it for the Lord's sake. We do it because government was and is instituted by God. Government is the will of God. 
It is the Lord that has put government in place for the sake of maintaining an ordered society. Friends, without government, we would do, let me see if I can think of biblical language, what is right in our own eyes. Friends, that's what we call anarchy. And that only leads to chaos, which is antithetical to the, to the character and nature of God. We serve of God of order. So for the Lord's sake, we submit to governing authorities. But the text also gives us another reason for submitting to governing authorities in verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You have to understand the historical context. There's, there's that word again. All sorts of accusations were made against first century Christians. They were accused of being atheists. Remember that in a Hellenized society, in a Greek society, you, it was expected that all Greeks, Romans, would, would worship Roman gods and goddesses as well as the emperor. Well, Christians didn't do that. They served the Lord. So because they didn't bow down to the idol of Roman gods and goddesses, they were called atheists. Not only were they accused of being atheists, but they were also accused of being traitors. You must remember that in biblical times, it was expected that everybody under the authority of the emperor would profess that Caesar is Lord. Christians, mm -mm. their profession was Jesus is Lord. Now, as a result of their profession, they were accused of treason because they were disloyal to the emperor. So, in light of these accusations, there are many more. They were accused of incest. They were accused of, of child sacrifice. Peter says, Peter's command to the church, in light of all these types of false allegations, is to still submit to the government. Why, Peter? Because good conduct contradicts false allegations. So then, what does this passage have to do with us, Pastor? I'm glad you asked. Just like them, we still are to submit to governing authorities. Beloved, <laughs> that includes the president, whether you voted for him or not. That includes Congress, whether you voted for them or not. That includes the governor, whether you voted for her or not. That includes the mayor, the city council, oh, and even the police. Our responsibility is to obey. And let me bust some burbles, some burbles, ha! Let me bust some bubbles real quick. That's all right, that's why I'm gonna come for you right now. This includes the speed limit. How about that burble? 
Brothers, sisters, Christians should be the best citizens on earth. Now, some of you are like, whoa, 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 preacher. So you mean anything that they say to do, we're supposed to do it. I didn't say that. Look at the, look at, just read the text. Verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, here it is, fear God. Honor the emperor. Fear God, honor the emperor. There's your answer. We fear God. We don't fear the emperor. We don't fear the president. We, we don't fear Congress. We don't fear any governing authority. We honor them by submitting to them, but we don't fear them. If the law of government contradicts the law of God, then to fear God means that we obey God rather than man. So, submit to governing authorities. Stop driving so fast. It's on my mind because I was traveling on 21st on the west side of town. And y'all, I daydream a lot. And I'm daydreaming. The next thing I know, I'm going 53 miles per hour in a 40. Well, you know the cops on the west side of town, they have nothing else to do but wait on me. So I see those lights. I turn, turn right as soon as I can. He says, I had you going 54. I saw 53, but hey. Here's what really happened. He says, can I see your license and registration, license and insurance? I say, I don't have my wallet. Mm, mm, mm. This whole time, I'm not saying that I'm a paragon of how you should uh, uh, act, but this whole time, all I can say is, yes, sir. You know you were going 54? Yes, sir. You know the limit is 40? Yes, sir. You don't have your license? You have any identification? I got a medical card on my phone. So he asked all my information. Then this is where he really gets me. He said, where do you work? Oh. <laughs> I say, first evangelical free church. <laughs> I say, the bridge church. Mm, mm, mm. And I just knew, I just knew. He was going to let the pastor get by. <laughs> no grace today. What I received was justice. He gave me a citation. I need to do something with that. But here's what. I, I went home. I told my wife. I said, yeah, I got a ticket. I said, I couldn't even argue. I can't even be mad about it. She said, you're such a nice person. Because it ruins my day. I make up a reason to be mad at the cop. They are put there to order our society. It's for our benefit. Those posted speed limits are for some reason. I don't know why, but they're there for some reason. Our job is to earn them. I'm not mad at that cop. I wish he'd have been somewhere else at that time of the day, but I can't be mad at him. He was just doing his job. 
At the end of the day, the sovereign God put him there for a reason. Y'all like, I ain't getting with this part of the sermon, Brandon. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Not only are we to submit to governing authorities, but Peter says you also got to submit in the workplace. Verses 18 through 25. He moves from the government to the household, actually. Remember, in the household, there were house slaves. And obviously, many of these house slaves have become Christians. So now that they are Christians, how are these house slaves to relate to, un how are they to relate to unbelieving masters especially those who are unjust and harsh, unbelieving masters. Can they just buck their master's orders? Can they rebel because they have a higher master in Jesus Christ? And Peter answers this question in verse 18. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, I'm reading this, I'm like, Peter, you're going a little bit too far now. Now, before I get to really explaining this verse, some of you want me to stop and speak on the institution of slavery. To your disappointment, not going to do it. Why? Because I'm an expositional preacher. My job is to explain the text in its context. This passage is not about the institution of slavery. It's about the individual slave. So, given that a servant has become a Christian, Peter says, you are to be subject to your master, whether good or bad. But why submit to the unjust masters? Because when you suffer unjustly for doing good, that actually finds favor with God. How? Because you are following in the steps of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 21. I'm, this, this first phrase is going to blow your mind. For to this you have been called. What is this? Suffering. That child of God, follower of Christ, is our lot in life to suffer. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. That word example is, is an interesting word in the original language. It's a compound word that literally means to write over. When I was in first grade, I had writing handbooks. I didn't go to kindergarten. I was too smart. So I went straight to first grade. To teach us how to write properly, the letters in the book would be written out for us. And our assignment was to trace over those pre-written letters. This is how we learned how to write. This idea is behind the word example in our text. 
Our calling as followers of Christ are to trace the footsteps of Christ. We are called to imitate the way of Christ. Beloved, hard truth. Here it is. Following Christ is a call to suffer. Harder truth. If you never suffer as a follower of Christ, you may not be a Christian at all. So Christ is our pattern, our example, our model to imitate in suffering even unjustly. How did he do it? Verse 22, he committed no sin. Neither was there deceit found in his mouth. In all his suffering, Christ never sinned. He never spoke in a manipulative manner for his own personal advantage. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The word revile means harsh, abusive language. When Jesus was verbally abused, he didn't hurl insults back at them. Some of y'all thinking Jesus was weak. Or Jesus was meek. He himself bore our sins on a tree that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. He suffered unjustly at the hands of men, but justly at the hands of God because of our sins against God. Jesus died for our sins, and as a result of his death, believers can now die to sin. Brother, sister, you don't have to live in sin. What we just sang is true. You are a free worshiper. You are no longer a slave to sin. We've died to it so that now we can live for righteousness. We can do the right thing because we've been set free from slavery and the power of sin through the death of Christ on the cross. We've been completely healed of this disease of sin. So beloved, Christ is our supreme example on how to suffer. We trust God to judge justly. We trust God to get vengeance on our behalf. We don't seek revenge because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So how does this section relate to us today? Slaves were employees of their masters. In like manner, we are employees of our employers. As believers in an unbelieving world, we submit to our bosses, even the bad ones, even the mean ones, even the awful ones. Beloved, we as followers of Christ should be the best employees on the planet. As Christians, we should be the best employees on the planet. Why? Because we do our work as unto the Lord. So this is something for us to keep in mind as we get ready to go to work tomorrow or as you prepare to go to class tomorrow. Dedicate your work to the Lord. That means, here we go. 
Here's another speed limit exhortation. Unless you have a flexible work arrangement, show up on time. Are y'all in here? They got these lights on high so I can't see nobody. What this means is we do our work with excellence. What this means is our work should never be good enough. What this means is we treat our coworkers with dignity and respect, even the ones we don't like. Remember, go back to verse 17, honor everyone. Remember, they too have been created in the image of God. This means, friends, all of this means that we obey our bosses, even the ones that are awful. We honor them. Why? Because this finds favor with God. It pleases the Lord. So let me give you a few recommendations for working honor and honoring bad bosses. Number one, pray for them. All too often we spend so much time thinking about how much they get on our nerves and talking bad about them, we forget that our job is to pray for them. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So, dealing with bad or good bosses, pray for them. Secondly, honor them. This is radical, all right? This is, a, this is an idea, not a command from Scripture. October 16th is Bosses Day. <clears throat> Emily Josh Rose. October 16th is Bosses Day. Put it in your calendar to do something tangible for your boss for the sake of your heart, the sake of your attitude, and honoring your boss. Thirdly, watch your mouth. It is so easy to talk bad about bad bosses, especially to other coworkers. Beloved, remember your witness is at stake. I got some Bible for you. Philippians chapter 2 verse 14 says this. Do all things without complaining. Finally. Trust God. Remember the text says that Jesus, when he was suffering unjustly, entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So friends, trust God to change your boss's heart and attitude. Or trust God that he will remove or reassign your boss. Now I didn't tell you to pray for that. But that may be one way God deals with them. So you got to trust God. All of this submitting to 
governing authorities, submitting to or submitting in the workplace. At the end of the day, we do this because our witness is at stake. Friends, as I said earlier, we live before a watching world. You honoring your bad boss may be what opens their eyes to Christ. So, worship team, you can come back now. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, noble, virtuous. So when they speak of you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter has to have in mind the words of Jesus Christ who said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Friends, everything we do, everything we say, witnesses to who we really are. What are you doing or not doing that is affecting your witness to a watching world? What does your rebellious nature say about your God? What does your desire for autonomy say about your Christ. The accusations and the allegations that are made against Christians, do they glorify God? These are the things for us to think about this week. Jesus is our example on how to suffer. We ought to imitate him. Someone may be here today and you may not be trusting or placing all your confidence in Jesus Christ for salvation, for forgiveness of sins. We've heard today clearly the gospel that Jesus Christ suffered for you. He took your death upon him so that you could be right with your creator and maker. That same Jesus was buried the good news is that he rose from the dead, meaning that God the Father accepted his death, his sacrifice, as full and final payment for your sin debt. So that if you believe on the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. And so for somebody today, the response from this word is this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody else is in this room today. You're saved. You know you have a right relationship with Christ. How are you doing in suffering? How are you doing in submitting? All of us are in authority or under authority. Child of God, Follower of Christ, 
How is your behavior before a believing world? Does it testify to the goodness of God? Or does it give them ammunition to continue to believe that we are hypocrites? What does your life witness about your Christ? Let's stand.